0: Something that's super interesting about Phoenix is that you hear a lot about how the population is exploding, which it is, but that's not the biggest factor of why rents are exploding. It's because incomes are exploding. So people that are moving to Phoenix aren't just, there's not just a lot of people moving. There's a lot of wealthier people moving. So in areas like like Tempe and Mesa, the average person moving into those areas, which we like a lot, is making way more money than the average people that are living there, which helps us try to find the best deals because we can be confident in our rent growth forecasts.
1: I'm Drew Brenneman and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19 year old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back to another podcast. On today's episode, I have Javi Mendez, who's an associate here at Rise Invest. Welcome, Javi. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to recording this episode for a while now. We're doing a ton of unique things as a real estate firm that a lot of other companies aren't, aren't really doing. We haven't really got into any of that in the podcast yet. Mm-hmm. So, looking forward to doing that today. We're going to do a deep dive into our AI and machine learning models that we've developed, and Javi's been instrumental in. And developing them and maintaining them so
0: thank you i'm excited to be on i've been watching basically every episode so it's fun to finally be here
1: well great why well, don't why don't you dive into your background kind of tell us how you got here and then let's jump into the ai
0: i studied finance at baylor with the intention of eventually getting into trading which is what my dad does and in that industry you typically start off as an analyst and when i was looking for positions after graduating or right before graduating i realized that to compete with all the other people that are applying for those positions. I had to add something that would make me stand out. And I decided to learn how to code. That would, that was my end game. I'm going to learn how to code so that I can be a better analyst one day. Nice. And as I was doing that here at Northwestern, I was looking for positions the whole time along the way to be an analyst at a trading firm But I'd had previous experience working in real estate as an intern back home in Houston. And the, I just saw the post on LinkedIn and it sounded super interesting and I applied and now I'm here. No, it was great.
1: We were looking for, for an analyst and also, you know, something that we, we've been kind of thinking about developing for a while was really more like a more granular, you know, rent and potentially Mm -hmm. cap rate projections. Cause a lot of these things you can just buy from CoStar or Yardier or wherever they give it to you in such a, it's a, such a, it's not in the geography you necessarily want like the for Chicago, like their breakdown of like part of the north yeah, side, it's break
0: it down by neighborhood, and it's not as granular as you'd want it to be for yeah. investments. Or
1: they combine like ten neighborhoods and one <laughs> one thing, and you're you're like, well, I'm just buying this building in this zip code. Like, can yeah. I have that? So so it was a really great fit because it's something I had been honestly like looking into but didn't even know where to start mm-hmm. and then Hobby comes through with the credentials <laughs> saying we can do it and then the confidence that we could make this thing so mm-hmm. it's a perfect fit. It's yeah. been, been great. So nice. Why don't why don't we just dive in? I mean, why are we making something like this?
0: I think the end game for something like this was to make better investments. And when we started working on it the the beginning of it was let's find out the best place to invest. Let's find the best or just markets in general for us to invest. So the first model that we developed actually was, wasn't focused on any zip codes or any specific sub markets like neighborhoods like we use nowadays for most of the stuff that we do. It was a generic Metro market analysis that we did. And we tried to forecast two different metrics. It was cap rates and it was rent growth. Primarily the decisions that we made Came from our rank growth projections. I would say, I think I would agree. But the rank growth that we did, it wasn't a generic rank growth metric. Was okay. Let's just see what's going to have the highest rank growth next year, and then invest there. The thing that we developed was something that would get the five-year average rank growth for the market starting in 2022. So from 2022 to 2026, what markets do we think are going to have the highest average rank growth? And we landed on the top three, and number one was Phoenix. (laughs) Yep. So basically the end game was to find the best places to invest. And then once we did that, it was to find the best places within those cities to invest.
1: Right. You hear all these anecdotes just on what's happening in different places, but then it was all actually a lot. I had a lot different experience actually seeing deals being underwritten Mm -hmm. and and comparing the anecdotes to what we're actually seeing where we would hear kind of the similar things across these different markets that are growing rapidly. But one kept jumping out as the best when we were underwriting and then also was top in a lot of the different things you could purchase. But then again, that's not, you know, we wanted more sort of data points and ways yeah. we could run our own calculations. So we started um, developing this using other, mm-hmm. other inputs and things we'll get into. But that was the thought, like we wanted to expand to in, and diversify markets and right. take advantage of all the growth we're seeing. And then this was a, a big part of, mm-hmm. you know, why we picked Phoenix.
0: It was pretty instrumental in terms of like, the decision we made and even not just picking Phoenix, but picking areas in Phoenix, I think the model that we made here, plus other different things we've made, like the database that Evans worked on so hard and the Yardy rent regression tool, those are all things that we use that are pretty data oriented to educate us and make better decisions. Cause we just don't want to golf anecdotes. You want to make sure you're going, looking at the numbers and you you're confident in what you're doing.
1: Right. And it was interesting. We'll get into how we broke it down, but we did eventually get this by zip code and mm-hmm when we'd run it and then we'd, I'd ask, all right, hobby, why don't you put put all the top zip codes, organize it mm-hmm. by, you know, what zip codes are the best to the worst, let's say, yeah. for rent growth. And, you know, it looks like the opening, you're like, well, you just made one for Phoenix. Like, what's going on? Because the whole top list is all the Phoenix zip codes and then yeah. some random ones here and there throughout the country yeah. sprinkled in. But it was it was really pronounced. And we're definitely seeing that in the deals we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're no exaggeration it feels like every month on these things we're buying or we own the rent scope $50 a month I mean it's yeah. really really wild
0: it'd be good to talk about what the models do because that's something that we get asked a lot and I think basically like we talked about they forecast rent but they do much more than just forecast rent we look at rent with relation to other metrics a lot so we've come up with custom metrics for our models but in terms of our models we started out just with the model I explained to you earlier, where it was okay, let's find the top markets, and it was the average rent growth model. And then we, after identifying the markets, the scope of that moved on to okay, we have our top three. Let's find the best one out of all of those. So that moved on beyond rent growth. It started looking at cap rates, so forecasting cap rates. While well, we believed that cap rates were going to be moving in the future, and we saw really positive trends basically across the entire South, in particular Phoenix, Vegas, Tampa. Parts of Houston, parts of Dallas looked really, really good. Are talking
1: about rent growth right now or cap rate?
0: Both. Both of them looked really good in terms of what we think they were going to do. Because we were seeing some markets that had crazy numbers for rent growth, but the cap rate compression wasn't that severe. So that was something that really attracted us as well. But after we decided on the markets that we wanted to go in, and primarily once we decided on Phoenix, we had to start acquiring data, as much data as we possibly could for Phoenix. So that began by going to providers like Yardi, like CoStar, like Moody's, the actual census, we got data broken down from the actual census, which we use a lot for our multivariate model, which we'll get into. And we use a lot of actual real estate metric data, like supply, deliveries, stock, and we relate those to each other as well to make more decisions on stuff like that.
1: Right. And we are eventually able to acquire or get this data reorganized by zip code Mm -hmm. as well, which then allowed us to get so granular. That was a, a big challenge initially was... Okay, sure, you can get this supply number for a city, but then it's not, it's not actionable necessarily if you could don't have it broken down how you want the, the output right. you know, or population or whatever the, the information is.
0: And you might get the data, but it might not be broken down in a, what we call a time series, which would mean that you would have the value of the metric, let's say rents, over a series of times. So you wouldn't actually be able to determine any trends or to make any sort of analysis on something where if you just have the one data point, like what is the supply now in Phoenix? Just knowing that isn't going to tell you much. You need to look at historically how it's changed and how other real estate metrics have evolved as it has changed, wow. which was the end game for both the Serimax model, which we call the simple model internally, and the LSTM model, which we call the multivariate model. Both of those use zip code data and a bunch of other metrics to make forecasts for rent growth
1: nice one thing that was interesting to, to hear and we have both models but even that how accurate this simple model's been because mm-hmm. really like that that has this one input mm-hmm. but then all these other factors are sort of factored into that yep. one input which is the past rent growth right and, and then that it was interesting to hear that and that's sort of the philosophy you were taught because that that's like Or me personally, it was not an intuitive thing to think that all these factors are already baked into this number we're entering.
0: Right. It's also hard for me to think about sometimes because you think, okay, well, if I'm going to forecast rents, I need to know how is the population going to change? How is the income, the average income going to change? How is supply going to change? These are all things you think about a lot when you're trying to forecast a rent. But the most predictive thing for forecasting future rent growth is past rent growth. So if, depending on how it's moved historically, that will be the biggest influencing factor of how it will move in the future. So that's also led to us to use the simple model a lot. You know, we can run it quicker than the multivariate model. It's proven to, I mean, over the past few months that we've seen, we annualized the forecast for the simple model and it comes out monthly. I know we're getting a little bit ahead, but the forecast we run it every month on every single zip code in Phoenix, and it annualizes the rent growth. And we compare it to the numbers that we're seeing in Phoenix. And you can believe it. Like they look right. they look pretty accurate. So we're pretty pretty happy with how that model turned out in terms of if you're only gonna have one input, you do the best you can and we think it does a pretty good job.
1: Yep. And so just in terms of the process of making that, so first, I mean we we started out with the simple model mm-hmm. and then we started acquiring more data. I want to touch on that.
0: So the simple model at first we were using historical zip code data we were getting from a variety of different providers, but we weren't really happy with it because we didn't like the the frequency at which we would receive the data. Some of that data we would get yearly, which I don't think is fast enough. Some of them quarterly, which is better, but you wanna be able to make quick decisions, especially in a market that moves as fast as Phoenix. So we actually were able to get data from Yardi that they have internally from their data team that isn't on their website or anything like that. It's not a subscription that you can purchase directly from them where they give you the rent values as they are monthly which is huge for our simple model because every single month we get an updated data set that tells us exactly what the rents are like historically for every single zip code in the country. So we can run it across the whole country. We mainly run it in Phoenix nowadays, but that's basically the the data that we use for that model.
1: And one thing too, that I thought was interesting as we developed these models was you don't just use the same model across Mm -hmm. the whole country. Right. That was surprising to me. Mm -hmm. So then let's, let's jump into that.
0: So. In both the multivariate and the simple model, they're trained individually by each zip code. So when I run the model, I don't hit run and then it spits out a rank growth for every single zip code in the country. Because the way it would work is the model is trained on historic data and then it will make future forecasts. If I were to train it on historic data for the whole country, it would learn a generic rank growth pattern for the country and apply that to each individual zip code. Which for your average zip code, I guess, would be correct but for these outlier cases, like in Phoenix, they're not gonna be anywhere close to accurate. So what we had to do is develop the the model in a way where we could put the data in specifically for the zip code, train it on just that zip code's data, and then run the model.
1: And what's interesting too, then you, like for me to hear this and then I go, well, how do we know this, this is the way to do it or how does mm-hmm. this work? And then we're back testing it. Right. So then you can see the two lines, like we ran the model. Mm-hmm which doesn't you know which runs and then we compare it to what actually happened right and then you look at it and it's like basically right on the line mm-hmm. and you're like wow this is
0: you see that it's pretty accurate and then you feel confident using it for future forecasts as well especially in a market like phoenix where you see it accelerate so quickly you want the model to be able to interpret that data where it accelerates and react to it because right. there's some models where you can run it it'll accelerate quickly but the model just won't care and it'll stay flat or it'll It'll just grow slowly. You want a model that's reactionary and, adapt, and adapts quickly to information, which is something that we really appreciate in the simple model. Actually, for one deal that we have now under contract, we got new data that came in and the rent growth slowed down a little bit. And the model immediately readjusted its forecasts and it jumped down to, from a 15% rent growth annualized to like a 13 and a half. So it immediately yeah. was like, okay, it's slowing down a bit. Let's bring this down a notch, which I think is good to have.
1: That's interesting. The 13% won't be too bad. It won't be it bad. Be bad. So. We'll take it. But nice. So that was a big takeaway to me in terms of feeling confident about the, the outputs. And a lot of times I was asking, let's test it up until March, 2020. Like let's not have COVID COVID. factored in necessarily Mm -hmm. on this. Let's at least test it that way. And it was also really interesting because a lot of these Southern markets where you feel like, oh, it it benefited so much from COVID. It was, they were already just on fire and it Mm -hmm. just, you you didn't realize it from your computer in Chicago. And then like Phoenix and Austin, these places were already oh, yeah. booming with or without COVID, and that yeah. just poured more gasoline on the fire, so to speak. But it was already when you run these models with uh, before COVID and then see what it projected, you're like, wow, that that already was going to be a lot, and now it's it's even more now. So
0: in some of those markets like Phoenix and Austin, there were some serious signs of growth way before COVID ever happened. Some of the metrics that we calculate in house showed that from the beginning that there was so much room for rents to run particular phoenix like when we use a lot is rent to income we'll get more into detail on these metrics later but the, that value was so like it was such an appealing value as an investor that you could tell from the beginning that some of these markets were going to take off
1: so starting with our simple model so the cerimax one mm-hmm. how, how does that specifically work
0: that one's much more easy than the multivariate to explain the most important letters in cerimax are the s and the ma s stands for seasonal which is good when you're operating with a a data set or a, a value or a metric that's seasonal like rent is. And the MA is moving average. So what the model is really doing is trying to find, uh, it's going to make regressions and try to found algorithms and lines of best fit for the historic data and seeing what would be the best formula or algorithm to use to accurately forecast how this metric has moved over a period of time. So for rent growth, it'll find the best different formula or algorithm for that specific zip code, since we run them individually and then use that same algorithm to make forecasts into the future. And all of that is determined by the model. All I'm doing is I'm calculating what the algorithm should be, and then I'm using that algorithm to make the forecast with a simple model. I'm not making any decisions there. For the multivariate model, that's an LSTM model, which stands for long short-term memory. All you really need to know about that one is that it's a deep learning model, which essentially means that it will try to emulate the way a brain would think it's an RNN network. It's become a lot more popular over like the past decade in lots of industries. I know that the finance industry and that the medical industry, especially uses this a lot, but what we use it for. And what I like it a lot for is that LSTMs are really good for dealing with time series data. So they're not the type of model where you put in one row of data and it spits you an output. What this model is really good at is taking a sequence of data and then interpreting that and giving you an output, which is what we need for rent growth. We need to take historical values of not just rent growth, but in the multivariate model where it's using population, income, custom metrics over a period of time, and then using that to forecast into the future.
1: And at the start of this, there's different AI and machine learning and neural network models, like the other ones we could have picked. Right. We picked these deliberately.
0: We picked these because these are the ones that we believe are the best for time series data and for forecasting the metrics that we need. So, models. Why well, reason that one and not max or just ARIMA? Well, rent is a metric that has seasonal components. Your rents are typically higher in the summer when you're signing new leases and in the winter. So because of that, we wanted to have something that would account for that. So that when we annualize the data, and you can look at it now in our model, you'll see in the summer, for some reason, those rents get a little bit higher yeah, right. annualized than they are in the winter. That's because we're accounting for the seasonality of the rent growth. And then the multivariate model one, we don't even make any decisions. We just run the model and then it spits out what it spits out.
1: Right, I found that very interesting. Where even then, how you find out what model to be running for the zip code Mm -hmm. is actually the models telling us. What are you feeding it for it to tell you that?
0: I'm feeding it historical data. So what I'll do is I'll grab historical data and I'll split it in any capacity. Typically, what I'll do is do 80 percent of training data, 20 percent test data. So it'll take that 80 percent of the data set and train and learn the algorithm off of that data, and then use that to test on the 20% it hasn't seen yet. Interesting. So because of that it'll test and if it finds that the algorithms doing a good job forecasting the last 20% of the data then we know we have a good model for forecasting that data set. We use that then to forecast into the future. So we don't even get to the point where we're making forecasts until the back test looks good. Right. Like the if you look at our model now the back test is a, a like a hard stop before you even get to the forecasting part of the model.
1: Right. And again that was that allowed me to have like a lot of confidence in this. We're just mm-hmm. seeing the back testing where Then you run the same algorithm with the old data from years prior and then lay that on top of what's actually happened. And you're like, wow, these lines are on top of each other.
0: And we're not just using just a simple, oh, do the the lines match for the back test. We're doing much more than that. Like we're checking the distribution and the errors of how big our errors are. You know, like are the errors normally distributed? That's a big factor. Because if they aren't, then there's a part of the model that you can probably figure out what's going on there and improve it. So we try to make sure that the lines fit well, that the errors are normally distributed and that there's not a lot of them. Obviously. Right, right, right.
1: And then let's, let's jump into some, some of the data we have that we use. Maybe let's not give away all our secrets here, but let's, we, we have a lot of inputs into mm-hmm. the multivariate one. I mean, I know yeah. you had mentioned something where some of these files we have that have yeah. data in them, you actually cannot open them. Yeah. on a.
0: You cannot open them in Excel without it crashing Excel. So what you have to do is you, I have, I've done pretty much all my data cleaning for the simple model because those data sets we get from Yardi are so big. They're like 5 million rows of data. You can't open that. So I've had to do all of my data cleaning in Python itself to to actually even manipulate it or get it how we want it to be.
1: And then what does that actually look like from a practical standpoint? I know another software we use for something else, Mm -hmm. they were cleaning our data in Python. And so I know what that's like, but I would to explain that
0: mainly it's just sometimes you'll get data sets that have missing values or the, they're not labeled properly. You find tiny little errors that sometimes can be a little bit of a hassle to fix. But the most important thing is making sure that you fill all the empty values or you drop them. So you're not training the model with zeros. Cause let's say for example, you're missing, you have a, something for this past year, for example, but you have no data for May, for example you would be going, okay, 100, 115, 120, and then you get to main, it's zero. Right. You Throwing don't want to get the, it throws the whole thing off and it can ruin your model. So you're trying to avoid those situations. Sometimes you backfill it with a value that should be there. You do a run a regression and you fill it in. Sometimes some models are so good where you can just input zero in for those values and the model will know, oh, he's missing a data point, just ignore it. So it depends on the model we're using or the data set we're using. But the cleaning, it's mainly just, it's stuff like that, fixing the, the issues in the, in the data set.
1: Right. How many, how many pieces of data do you think we have at this point?
0: I mean, it depends on the model that we use, but I mean, for the multivariate one, I think I calculated we had like over 40 million data points for that one. Four zero. Right? Four zero million. And then for the simple one, I haven't even done the math. It's like 5 million times. I think we have like 15 metrics in that one. So do the yeah, math. it's a crazy number. No,
1: I know there was a period of time where every, every couple of days or week it was we. More, yeah, more data to buy more data would come us, in. or even just more stuff to, to buy. Or <laughs> let's sign up for this and get on this. Or we found we found a place to, where we again getting everything by zip code was really important, but yeah. that was not that was difficult. General like census info that's out there. That's just by like county or MSA.
0: And it's hard to get a hold of that data because you know it's coming from the government. So sometimes those institutions don't really do a good job about getting it out there and cleaning it and making it uh, in a nice and digestible way for any, any model, you know. So that's probably actually the data we have the most trouble with is the census data, but it's it's not as bad as you think it is in terms of once you find the right providers, you can pretty consistently get a hand of them and get the data you need
1: right and then or in and so we were eventually able to get that by zip code so but that and then some of this stuff like the supply data and other mm-hmm. stuff, well, let's say the departments coming online, we were able to get everything by zip code eventually. It right. wasn't yeah. wasn't easy
0: it was hard, and especially in some of these markets where that data just doesn't exist. There's in Phoenix, in some zip codes, you're seeing, oh, we have the supply data historically, but going back to 2015, they don't have it going back like the rent numbers where it's 1990. Right. So it's hard to then use them in your models because, oh, well, it hasn't really been right. here for that long for us to be able to use it accurately for some forecasts. Sometimes right. also the models can learn incorrect things about data, which is something you want to avoid or like supply that you mentioned it. Supply has been going up in Phoenix, but still so have rents. You want to avoid a situation where a model thinking, oh, a supply goes up, so do, so do rents. So you have to be careful with how you're inputting the data and how the model is interpreting it as well.
1: Right. So many factors. And then I found it very interesting too, just in terms of learning about the different correlations with certain factors mm-hmm. where apartments on one hand, it's simple, like it's supply and demand. You need more renters than mm-hmm. units coming online for rent growth. And so... You think it's that simple, but then you really start thinking about it, and there's so many factors. There's different. You could have population growth, but it could be the wrong setup. It might not be renters. If it's high income seniors that are buying houses, it's not going to help you. Or if you, you know, you're you have a lot of people moving in, but it's on the other end of the spectrum. They can't afford an apartment barely. Right. It's not going to help rent growth if they already are spending half their money right on rent, which we see in some cities. It was interesting. I mean, San Francisco has a whole set of problems beyond this but it's there. people were spending like 50 percent of their there, income yeah. on rent mm-hmm. so then you go okay that's gonna eventually put a keep keep rent growth at a certain level because people can't afford to be paying this kind of money right whereas you look at other places and it's way lower i mean less than half of that mm-hmm. and you go there's room to run in this and people are paying way below the traditional whatever 130 your income on housing so and then Also tracking just how that rent to income has changed. Mm -hmm. Because you would think, let's say in a place like Phoenix, that- that It would have
0: accelerated. It would have grown. Like
1: rents have gone up 30% in the last year. That that rent to income must have really changed. Instead of Mm -hmm. being at 20, it must be at like 30 something now. Mm -hmm. And then actually it's either, I forgot the same or went down.
0: In some zip codes, it stayed flat. And lots of them, it was like, I think the highest I saw in Phoenix was around the mid to high 20s. I've seen as low as like 12. In wow. terms of like the rent to income. But those zip codes that we have, some in deals that we're interested in, or like Pharma, for example, we've seen situations where it's actually gone down. So rents are increasing, but not at the same pace as incomes are. And you're seeing that metric a lot. Another metric that we look at aside from rent, rent income is the percentage of households that make more than $75,000 a year. And that metric in tons of these zip codes is exploding. That's from outside migration or from intercity in migration where people in wealthier areas of Phoenix are moving to less wealthy areas of Phoenix because the apartments look nice in Phoenix. Right. You know, you get a nice garden style home and you get a backyard and everything, and you can get all that in an apartment in Phoenix.
1: Right. And then that's, that's a real recipe for huge rent growth. If you have mm-hmm. affluent people moving into an area, right. and there's a big change. So that, that we've, we've seen firsthand, even without this data where it's noticeable, where pushing and, yeah. and getting a lot nicer. That's interesting on the Tempe deal then that let's say rents and Tempe, they're up 30%, let's say last 12 months. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the incomes, it's they're, they're up in the aggregate, like beyond 30. So then you go, this is actually quite sustainable, which you know, was a real shock because you would think, okay, this could last for like a couple of years. People can't afford this kind of growth and kind of in the aggregate, they can.
0: Something that's super interesting about Phoenix is that you hear a lot about how the population is exploding, which it is. But that's not the biggest factor of why rents are exploding. It's because incomes are exploding. So people that are moving to Phoenix aren't just, there's not just a lot of people moving. There's a lot of wealthier people moving. So in areas like like Tempe and Mesa, the average person moving into those areas, which we like a lot, is making way more money than the average people that are living there, which helps us try to find the best deals because we can be confident in our rent growth forecasts.
1: Right. And something when you're actually physically there and then our data does support this, like Tempe and Mesa, it's more affordable than Mm -hmm. the surrounding suburbs compared to like a Chandler or Gilbert and then, so like there's, there's room to run like on that too. Cause Mm -hmm. if you want to live on the east side of Phoenix, Mesa is the cheapest option. That's why the incomes are also growing. Cause Mm -hmm. now you have some people that have healthy incomes So they're priced out of a place like Chandler or wherever, you know, Phoenix proper, and then they move to Mesa Mm -hmm. and then the incomes are up.
0: The incomes, and then not just that, but we're seeing that the people that are moving to these areas are a lot younger too. Be a good time to touch on the three custom metrics that we're using a lot that help us and the model up. We found these to be very predictive, particularly in Phoenix, which is basically one metric that focuses on the rent income, which is just a rent income metric. Another focuses on the renter population, which we calculate ourselves with census data, and another one is the one we mentioned earlier with the percentage of households making more than seventy-five k. And what we're finding when looking with these custom metrics and then the traditional metrics like just income and just population is that those are more correlated with rent growth than the traditional metrics. So we're seeing growth or like, for example, in Phoenix, the average person in the areas that we like that are in between 18 and like 40, which would be sort of renter populations, it can be close to 50%. But then in other areas where you see these high rent growth, which else back up Phoenix, like in Tampa, that value is 30%. 35%. 35%. So that's just another point to add to Phoenix. Okay. Not, not only are the people that are moving in making more money, they're also younger, which makes them more likely to rent Right. and their rent income is already so low that you can be charging these people more and they can afford it.
1: Right. I found that very interesting. Cause I know we were talking basically only about Phoenix, but we did mm-hmm. look everywhere with yeah. this. And then it was very interesting to see where, I mean, it was like every metric Phoenix is basically the best. It's yeah. crazy. And so. We're right and the Florida thing is a good point where you have a lot of affluent people moving there, but that's going to skew older. Mm-hmm. And then if you just look broadly at, okay, I want to compare population growth in total compared to, oh, uh, let's just say apartment supply, but you don't have the age factored in then. And you don't have also one thing that I think is important. You got to be thinking about the actual like number of households. So then if you compare like a Florida,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: mean, that's tirees, let's say odds are there's more than one person in that household where. Yeah a single person from California moving to Phoenix, making a ton of money.
0: We're using household growth as well in our multivariate model. That's another metric that we found to be pretty highly correlated with rent growth, particularly in Phoenix. We actually run correlation analysis on every zip code individually. So we don't try to find out on any of these markets, okay, how correlated is population growth in Tampa? We don't do that. What we do is, okay, for Phoenix, let's see, or let's use Chicago as an example. How correlated is population growth with rent growth in 60607? We can find that out. We can run the analysis and we can discover that. So that also helps us for our models because we can then narrow down the metrics we actually want to use. You know, there's like over 150 census metrics that we have. Putting them all into the model is kind of pointless if half of them are correlated in any way whatsoever. Because you can have positive or negative correlation and then you can use them. But if it's around zero correlation, you can dump it and your model runs more efficiently and it won't get distracted by other stuff. So in many cases, like in Phoenix, we're narrowing it down to using 15 metrics to run the multivariate model. Some from the census and some custom that we use ourselves.
1: And then the three that you named, those those have the highest correlation then? Of the
0: ones that we've calculated, those are the highest correlated. Because we've got some other ones that we've used, like a supply to like a deliverables to supply ratio. So how has that changed over time? What percentage of deliverables coming into the market? Because what percentage is that going to be of total supply? We've been tracking that. There isn't that much correlation with rent growth or a metric like that one. What really is correlated has to do with actual people incomes and how many people are there.
1: Which that I found really surprising because I would have thought the top ones would have been households and then supply. So that's not in the top three, mm-hmm. either of those, which is interesting. So, cause that, so that I've learned a lot from mm-hmm. this data we have in terms of the correlations. Well, those might be most correlated in other markets.
0: Like it's not like you were wrong thinking that because in some markets that might be true. You, I mean, so you worked the whole time in Chicago. I can just imagine that in Chicago, that might be the case.
1: Well, but actually this is more what I've really liked about what we're doing now with the AI model, and then some of these other things that we're using that we should shoot an episode on, like Mm -hmm. our database where we log every deal we underwrite Mm -hmm. and like hundreds of metrics off of it. And then how we're running these linear regressions on Mm rents, all this kind of stuff really takes out like investment bias and and errors. So if let's say we never did this, I would still be walking around Phoenix and Chicago Mm -hmm. thinking number one, most important thing is households compared to supply and i start because even when we were in phoenix the broker said there was 20 something thousand units in the pipeline and Mm -hmm. every every year ninety thousand people are moving here and i and then also he's like i think the date is wrong like we will find out how many really moved here he thinks more people when people file their tax returns it Mm -hmm. it doesn't like 90 is more like the normal number and doesn't feel normal right now and so i would have normally thought Well, I need that broken down by households. If there's three people in each, there's 30,000 units. It's like a match. I don't Mm -hmm. know if this doesn't sound so great, but hearing more about what we've learned on this, then I know it actually works quite a bit different. I'm comparing two things that are not as correlated as Mm -hmm. the income changes or just looking at that renter cohort age tranche of people and what's going on with that.
0: And then also that's just, that's a Phoenix specific thing where you're seeing average income growing at a faster pace than the number of households coming in, the percentage change of households. In other markets, it might be different. You know, the percentage change of income might be slower than the percentage change of households, and rent might be going down. Right. So you need to be, that's why also we're doing is zip code by zip code. You have to be very particular and try to be as granular as possible when you're making these forecasts. Because a lesson you're learning from down the block might not apply to where you actually are. And one
1: thing, too, that would be interesting to hear, because originally when I was like, why do we not just have the same model for every zip code? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is going to have bias in it or not, not work how we think it would. And two things you said, one of them is actually the model is explaining what it sort of needs mm-hmm. to be accurate. So it's not like you're just over here. Yeah. I mean, your own personal do. bias. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was, you said, like, what would happen if we use the same code so the same model let's say to uh, let's pick a city to do phoenix and detroit mm-hmm. like, what would happen if you did that what would the numbers look like
0: i mean it would make phoenix look worse than it is and make detroit look better than it is that's what it would do because it would learn off of an average of both of them and you're not going to get an accurate representation of either of them and that doesn't apply just for cities it applies for areas within cities too Yep. you wouldn't treat north houston the same as some other area in houston like it's that you treat areas separately depending on where they are and what the people in there are like what the incomes in there are like and everything like that
1: right and that's allowed us we have so many really granular insights Mm -hmm. where i mean we can let's just we can share the north houston thing it's it's fine, but yeah. the, that where we look at this, and we, in general, people with old Houston, let's just not touch it, oil, mm-hmm. whatever. We're we don't, That's we do not It's an oil got, dependent we got, city. We got burned in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. and you know, two thousands. <laughs> every decade, there's some new problem there. Let's just not touch it. But then you really get, and you're in the, in a more granular level, and you go, actually, there's a whole Section part of the North MSA Houston. that you're just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to mm-hmm. speak, saying that it's actually one of the best parts of the country in terms of projected rent growth and has a much more diversified economy also than the old days. So
0: particularly with Northeastern, what we're seeing is you hear a lot about how Houston's growing a lot. It's about to, to overtake Chicago or might already have as the third biggest city in the country. That population isn't getting spread out evenly. The people that are moving to Houston are moving to very particular areas of Houston, they're moving to the Northern suburbs. And that that just means that those areas will become much more attractive as an investor,
1: right? And that's actually the same things happened in Chicago, where mm-hmm. Illinois in, is flat or losing people, but the north side of Chicago yeah. is gaining, and that's where I bought all my deals. And it hasn't felt like where we're lo- like we're losing people. It feels like yeah. there's every year more demand for what mm-hmm. I'm yeah. what I'm selling or renting. So that, but the south side of Chicago, the southern part of the state. Mm-hmm. Some suburbs, they are losing people. So yeah. then if you just go, okay, what's happening in Illinois, it's it's flat, mm-hmm. but where we're investing it's not. And you can then apply mm-hmm. the same thing with actual, more granular analysis and actual facts and right. evaluate stuff across the country doing that. So even though we're just talking about Phoenix so much, we really look through kind of everywhere and it was just interesting to compare our data. And then mm-hmm. one thing too, to mention like our... The model we use to underwrite the deals mm-hmm. it breaks out all the units by unit type and then has all the leases signed sequentially by month, and you can look at what's happening at the actual building because what yeah. often happens is it's a hundred unit building and one lease gets signed at like a ten percent increase mm-hmm. and then that's what you hear about but then you don't know was that just ten percent below market and the market hasn't done anything, or what yeah. are we talking about here so that was something too that we should dive into in another podcast that really drove home the whole Phoenix thing. Cause mm-hmm. we were underwriting deals all over the whole country and you hear that 10% anecdote and then you underwrite the deal and it's like, it was just that one unit and it mm-hmm. was a little <laughs> market. And then you look at the Phoenix one and it's like every month the rent went up on every unit. We just, every month they decided let's go for 20 bucks more and they keep getting it and, they, and then, so you look and it's also color coded with this conditional formatting, so yeah. you don't even need, you just. Every cell is like dark green in Phoenix and in other places, it's more of like a distribution of different colors and shades. Whereas in Phoenix, it's just like everything's green and every month it's increasing on the prior month.
0: And it's, it's interesting for the underwriting, just to hone that in as well. We try to make sure that when we actually do our underwriting, we're not being too aggressive with anything like that. So even if we're forecasting rank growth in some of these zip codes where it's like in the double digit rank growth we always cap ourselves on what our forecasting rent growth will be for every single year in the market. And we go below the average weighted rent growth projections that we have for the next five years. And we go below the historical values we're for the next five years. So for, even if we're forecasting these crazy rent growth numbers that we think are accurate, and then the market is showing us are accurate. We still are pretty conservative with our underwriting to make sure that we get the best deals with right. the market.
1: Right. But we're not just relying on, on this growth. I mean, a lot of the stuff we're buying, we're either renovating the property and mm-hmm. forcing it, forcing the appreciation of the asset or it's, we just, we, if we get the rents to where they should be today, Mm -hmm. we're walking into a million plus dollar value increase in the property. And those are the deals we're doing. And right. Our AI model could say 15% rent growth Mm -hmm. and we're not putting that in the, right. the 10 year (laughs) average in Phoenix, if it's, what is it? 8 8% or we're, we're, so that's where we see that and we go, okay, let's, put in 5% for the first Mm -hmm. couple of years, not not eight or 13.
0: Which not just in terms of our forecasting is conservative, but historically is quite conservative as well.
1: And so I also, I think too, like a lot of these deals, it could... I think it could play out where you do get the 13 and mm-hmm. you're going in year two like, geez, we could sell this for what we told people it'd be worth in year five because I, I see <laughs> that with too. people who I follow on social media or other companies that are in Phoenix and they, they're shooting videos talking about how we were going to renovate the property, mm-hmm. but we decided not to. Cause we're just getting the rents already. We thought we would get when we renovated it. Mm-hmm. So we're just raising the rents. We're going to sell it. We don't, we don't need to renovate it.
0: We're seeing that in our underwriting now with some of these deals where we had thought we were going to get X rent. And then two months pass and we're getting past that already.
1: Our one deal we're buying where they renovated it 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. we thought, okay, based on the info today, which would have been in November, or December, let's say. Mm-hmm. or we'll, It's not dated that way, but, you know, mm-hmm. it would have been a couple months old at this point. Yeah. And we, you go to, you shop that same comp that was $1,500 two months ago, mm-hmm. they're asking 1650 now. And they're Wait, getting that's it that's what too. we were going to get when we renovated it.
0: Because you look at the rent roll and they're getting it So a then, signed
1: lease. So then you're like, geez, what did we even change our numbers to? Where I we're not doing this, but I did joke with Evan where I was like, We're gonna have to turn on a feature in our model where the just add twenty five no month. the rent grows while you're under contract, but like yeah. we're missing three months of rent growth. And mm-hmm. of course it's like it's already in there if I just have it turned <laughs> off. But I was like, I will right, we'll leave it off. That's a too aggressive, but like we yeah. need to actually maybe think about that. It's gonna scare the lenders. Right. <laughs> that would be that but that same thing happened on on, on Desert Palms where we started the deal thinking, oh, we could get to 1350 and that's what's in what we send mm-hmm. out to everybody. And, you know, we asked the current management, and, like, go for 1400 And so we thought maybe we'd get it to that once we buy it. And mm-hmm. we're, the current oh, yeah. ownership, we're just, they're asking, what do you want to charge? And we're already getting it. So it's unbelievable um, stuff. I know. That's why the joke here is the, the, the yesterday's <laughs> price went up. Price went up. Yeah. That was yesterday's price. Every time we go down there, it's like there's a new new price. and
0: mm-hmm. yeah, It's unbelievable stuff. That's happening in Phoenix.
1: And I'm... And I'm there every week <laughs> now. So, well, nice. Well, let's see what else. I mean, kind of. What's we got? Anything more on the thought process on behind the data we use? Or
0: I think in terms of it'd be nice to talk about the philosophy that we've taken when forecasting, because there's lots of. It's not just okay. Let's just take the data, plug it in, and then then we get our output, and that's all we got. You have to sort of think about it in terms of what do you want to get out of it. So for us, it was okay. Let's find the best zip codes, but not just that. We're getting deals where we haven't necessarily already looked at the zip code so what happens in that situation is okay we underwrite the deal does it look good yes or no and then we also have to look at the market itself so we don't just take any deal at its face value just looking at the comps just looking at the underwriting you have to understand the market pretty well as well so that's what the multivariate model does pretty accurately Mm -hmm. in my opinion is that it doesn't just tell us what the rent growth is going to be it'll teach us about how population has changed over time It'll teach us about how incomes have changed over time. So when we set out the mm-hmm. process to build that model, we wanted something that wouldn't just tell us what rents we're going to do, but about the zip code specifically. So it generates insights that we otherwise would never have seen, right. which is nice to have.
1: And I know that you had touched on, we also had pr- started projecting cap rates. Mm-hmm. But really that I, th- I think we, we stopped. I don't want to put a lot of stock in going, okay, we're going to buy this and then the If the cap rate falls, it basically just to keep it simple means the multiple for what this thing would trade at goes up. I don't want to buy a deal assuming that big part of the thesis is going to be the multiples higher later. Like I just, we assume that the multiple goes down so the cap rate goes up to have like a margin of safety in there, Mm -hmm. where if it's going to sell at one sort of valuation today, we assume the valuation is less aggressive or would generate a a smaller price in the future just to be conservative. So I don't, I mean, we did see that and it was interesting to see because a lot of the trends are cap rates continuing to fall. Mm -hmm. The That's in large part just alternative investments these days.
0: Lots of equity wants to get into multifamily. So
1: it's been very interesting just kind of reading all the different trade publications where. You'll say you had you had a certain amount of money that was mm-hmm. chasing real estate. that amount is up dramatically yeah. just that so there's more money out there and a big search for yield and alternatives now and mm-hmm. alternatives are more in demand more commonplace right so there's more money trying to get into real estate and then over the last ten years, I mean some of the bigger product types used to be office and retail and mm-hmm. hotels, and now more or less all the money just wants to be in apartments right. and you know in industrial so mm-hmm. then you have which i forgot the percentages but it was let's say that's a third or so of the overall market I mean, maybe those two together was a 20 percent each or something and now you yeah. have all, all that money chasing into those and there's other alternatives that are still in demand like self-storage and mm-hmm. other things but that you know student housing is another big one but it's mm-hmm. all so that's that's a, a trend that's just comp- so at your back with that where but i don't want to go into these deals going all right we're just cap rates going to yeah. drop and then we're going to make you know
0: i think the the decision that we made with cap rates was that it wasn't a metric that you wanted to basically go in and trusting and 100% just going in with that metric and saying, okay, this is where I want to be. Because first of all, it's a big risk. Like everyone, everything can say cap rates are going down and historically they have been going down, but that's a big gamble if you're depending on your cap rate to go down. And another thing, cap rates aren't predictive for success like rent growth is. When you look at a deal in real estate, like the biggest question of your income, like rents are your income. And f- to have a successful real estate investment, you need to be able to get or maximize your rents. Right. And the best places to invest are the places where you're going to see that value being as high as possible or changing as quickly as possible in your favor. Yep. So yeah, the... F- and, oh yeah.
1: It, if you knew for sure cap rates were going to drop and you could... that Sure, that you could generate a big mm-hmm. appreciation with that, but that's yeah. just not how people in this industry work. So if mm-hmm. you sent something like that to a lender or a sophisticated... Mm -hmm. potentially investor in the deal they're they're not used to seeing that but assuming a little higher rent growth and maybe the traditional three percent because our model's kicking out 13 and the past number is eight Mm -hmm. you know and then the number for the last five years is way above that so then that makes sense but if you go in saying we have we think cap rates are dropping that's the main point we're buying this deal it's
0: incredibly risky it's not no one's gonna get approved it's
1: not compelling where Mm -hmm. finding something where it's a discount today You can drive the income higher and you're in a preferred zip code. That makes a lot Mm -hmm. of sense. That's why we're focusing on that.
0: And just also, I think cap rates are, they're good to know, but you can also get an idea of them from talking to brokers. And then in our database, you can see what all these deals are trading for in terms of cap rates. You can get an idea of those just from underwriting, whereas rent growth, it's much more difficult to get an idea of how it's going to change in the future. Or you can, you can't see it immediately like cap rates. Unless you have a really good model like ours. But but it's it's also a metric that we think is, is better to have an idea of three, five years from now.
1: And then too, I mean we we would have maybe factored it in more if it was telling us something adverse, but it was more just like it's the saying, same trend this, line. This is gonna only get better. So mm-hmm. then that's you know, so I think we'll still keep an eye on it, but it's definitely not our major, major focus. Yeah, I'd
0: say right now the, the models that we do are pretty much exclusively forecasting rent right. and how different ways of looking at rent growth. So like the one we mentioned at the beginning, the average rent growth over the next five years, we're still looking at that for all major markets to make a decision about, oh, where where could we also invest in one day? That's something we keep a track on. And then also the, the traditional simple model rent growth that updates monthly and then the multivariate one, which gives us an idea of how we expect the entire zip code to change over the whole year. Those are typically the things that we use the most in terms of predictive models.
1: Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website now back to the show. One thing is we're talking that I'm really sort of thinking about, and I guess want to touch on is in a, in a way, obviously we do these deals and then if mm-hmm. there's investors in them, we charge a percent of the profits as part of how we make money. Right. Like in large part, we're with all the stuff we have, like we're paying for ourselves, like we're finding deals off market, yeah. we're getting into the best zip codes and so just worth mentioning that as we're going through this, because it is it is hard to compete for these deals and then especially if you want to try doing something Mm part-time or you're you're using just kind of more the traditional sort of data sources or just kind of using like a gut feel on how things will grow Mm -hmm. like we you know we have actual you know models where we're projecting rent we have buildings we own that we can use for expense comp so it's you know what we're putting together very accurate and gets you into the right stuff so it's just kind of as you're running through that, that's what's going through my head, thinking this is getting hard to compete with some some players and others have similar s- stuff that we've mm-hmm. ran up against, but it's just getting getting really getting more competitive and actually some technology is finally making its way into real estate. Yeah, where- it's
0: it's funny how real estate when compared to other industries that have to do like finance and medical, we've mentioned before, it's just so far behind in terms of data and big data and analytics. So it's nice to see that the industry is coming to right. terms with it, but it's also good to know that we have this when a lot of other firms don't, Right. which makes us more informed on certain decisions that we would take and the markets we're looking at and the deals we're looking at. I think the whole data infrastructure that we've got going on from the AI to our underwriting processes, I think it's, it's pretty good. And I'm pretty yeah. happy with it.
1: And I, even we had, we wrote that blog about all the technology we're using. And I yeah. was, I mean, I know it's my company, but I was like surprised <laughs> to see like all this stuff almost written out where it's like, okay, we get the Rent rolling and expenses, we scrub that with Red IQ using mm-hmm. their AI and everything to match it up and do that quickly, and then we mm-hmm. dump it into an institutional model and yeah. log the deal in our proprietary database where we pull out <laughs> hundreds or thousands of data points. Then we can plot it on a map in Salesforce and keep track of everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we're got buying all this different data and subscriptions and stuff, and is is surprising where because fast forward five years ago. You just get sent a deal. You underwrite it. and just, It looks good. You, it looks good. Oh, feel like zero technology. And at least now it's, depending on the firm, it's really creeping in. It's given us a huge advantage. You know, I,
0: you get a lot of key insights that you otherwise wouldn't. There's some things you learn from looking at data you never would have guessed. One of the ones that was big for me, actually, now that I mentioned that, when I was looking to the data set, is you, you're about really setting, you say, okay, population going up. That's good for you. I mean, right. The demand's going to go up. You're going to have a good investment if your population goes up. But that's not always the case. You know, you get situations where, like you mentioned before, the population can go up, but the average income of that person moving in is lower than the people living there. So your rent isn't actually going to go up. It might stay flat or it might actually decrease depending on how big that difference is. Right. So that was something that to me stood out. Is was like, okay, you don't want to get married to any big philosophical, basically staples of the industry when you're looking at the data. You just want the data to teach you and you're. Move your biases aside right. when you're looking at the data. It's something that's super important and hard to do. And the other thing for me was like, okay, these big cities that are growing, all of them are going to be good. They're all going to be the same. And that's not the case. When you look right. at the data, there's big differences between like, even for example, a big one that people are talking about is like Raleigh-Durham. Everyone knows it's growing. It's a, it's a beautiful city. Tech is moving there. But it's not growing the same as the Sunbelt. Right. You know, like if you're looking across the South, you you can throw a dart in some of these places genuinely and get better rent growth than in some areas of the country. So it's, it's unbelievable to see, like, even just by looking or hearing word of mouth on some of these places, you'll hear that some places are good and they actually are. And you hear that some of them are good and they're not really, right. you know, Phoenix, we got a lot of good feedback on and we looked at the data and it was just as good, if not better than we thought it was. Right.
1: That's been huge for me because especially traditionally real estate, it's just a lot of I mean, people are underwriting, but a lot of the assumptions they're putting in, it's just like a gut feel thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I always use 3% yep. rent growth. In a place like Phoenix, that's not going to be enough. And in a lot of places in the Midwest, not all, but you know, many, mm-hmm. that would be way too much.
0: They would just always have to underwrite at 3%. Couldn't <laughs> change it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Always underwrite 3% rent growth, which in some places that could, you kill a bunch of deals that otherwise would be great. And if you actually look at the data, underwriting just 3% in some of these markets is, is shooting yourself in the foot. Right. You're n- it's not. It's reality and you want to underwrite reality conservatively, but you do want to underwrite reality.
1: Right. And then you hear where those deals are that they close with that just blanket 3% and mm-hmm. it's okay. We missed out on everything in all the growing markets. And mm-hmm. then it's, we picked off stuff and actually markets that aren't growing so much. Yeah. they are buying and you know, listen, I don't need to throw places in <laughs> I guess, but in places that aren't, aren't, aren't actually growing at 3%. Yeah. Or, or, or below. you look, or you look back at the five-year rent growth and it's like an averaging a 1%, and right? Underwriting 3%. It's yeah. Like, Exactly. So then, what's been great for for me is just the whole, just eliminating bias. And then, two, actually, a big insight I personally had was now that we we acquired so much data on rent growth from all these different sources and by zip code. And then, like I always felt like, let's say the last five years, my rents in Chicago weren't moving. Mm-hmm. We were buying deals that were below market. So then you raise them, and then you get them to
0: market, and then they just stayed there.
1: And that was more just like a feel. We had the actual numbers. Mm -hmm. But it was, it's all, it happened slowly. So then you go, Mm -hmm. okay, 2016, I feel like my rents didn't move. Mm -hmm. 2017, I feel like they didn't move either. Then 2018, you have a pretty good year. You look Mm -hmm. at it and you go, well, was that just my buildings or what was it? And so it was interesting to actually get the data because then it was just like all these things you kind of had been thinking, a lot of them. You can see it right there. It's actually in it. Mm -hmm. So then when we calced it and I see it, I'm like, this is this is what I had been thinking, but we never had the resources to buy all this data before or calculate it all. So that, that was interesting in terms of more like boots on the ground kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How are we actually using this? Like that was an insight, not from even the AI, but just sort of having all this data at our fingertips, what we can do.
0: And I think it's also important to note that we're not making decisions solely based off of one thing. Like we're not deciding. Just off of the A model where to invest, we're not deciding just based off how good the underwriting looks where to invest, we're factoring in everything, you know, so like we have to make sure that the underwriting is conservative and that we like it. And we think it's realistic. We have to see the, what the model is spinning out is something that's attractive to us and the, not just the rank growth forecast, but what do the population and income metrics look and how have those been relating to each other historically? Do the trends that are happening there that are making it look so good. Now, do we believe those are going to continue? Right. Those are all things we factor in and. Sometimes you still do have to go off a of word of mouth. Like some, it really does help. Okay. You hear some idea from somebody and then you can look at the model and check. Okay. Are they right? Are they wrong? Are we actually seeing this historically? You hear about rents. You can look at the rent analysis tool. Right. Is that real? You hear about population growth. You can look at the multivariate model case. Is, is it real? These are things that help us not just. Be more informed but confirm what we're hearing which is super important as well
1: right are you it's the a lot of the anecdotes the data can confirm or you know completely deny r- yeah, something right. where but it's a lot of it is you hear this area is getting better and before i used to just think okay it does look like it's getting better mm-hmm. now seeing the numbers it actually helps me like conceptualize what's happening okay mm-hmm. that part to the north you're thinking about that's really affluent it's getting expensive there people are moving further south mm-hmm. into this area mm-hmm. And then as, and then we look at the data and it's like, the incomes are going up dramatically there. And so before I, I didn't think about it that way. I just thought it's getting nicer. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking.
0: Exactly what's happening.
1: Prices are elevating. People are looking for another option. And Mm -hmm. then people that are more affluent are moving. This is just a made up example, but they're moving Mm -hmm. south. Mm -hmm. And so then that, that made me just kind of think about it differently.
0: That's also another reason that we chose to do zip codes and not neighborhoods or not metro markets because. Those type of insights, you can generate them. You know, you can tell if someone's moving from one neighborhood to another, if you're looking at it on a zip code basis, you can tell how incomes are changing throughout the city. If you're looking at it on a zip code basis, you can see where populations are coming in from out of state. If you're looking at it on a zip code basis, another thing too, you can see where things are being built a lot, which is super, super important for us. You know, if you see a place that's being overbuilt, you want to avoid it. If you see a place where not a lot of construction is happening, but the population that's moving in is wealthier. That's a huge opportunity. So you have to look at basically everything before you make any decisions, which I think is is the right way to do things. And I think one of the best things that we do is we don't just trust one particular thing. We trust, we look at everything before we make decisions.
1: Right. What, do we have any surprises you'd say? So we make all this stuff as we go. Mm -hmm. What what, what surprised you?
0: I think in terms of markets, it actually surprised me how far ahead in terms of appreciation and rent recourse potential the Sunbelt was compared to the rest of the country. Like you hear a lot, of it's like, well, oh, right. Phoenix is super hot. Las Vegas is super hot. No, 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 they're hot. Yeah. Like you don't understand, like these markets are crazy right now. And historically the data has backed it up. So that's something that surprised me. I thought you'd see really attractive Court, but nothing like what we're actually seeing. When you're going there, you see it, you hear about it, you, you're you there. And then when you look at the data, it backs it up. Everything is yeah. is there. Another thing is that you would be surprised with how well some areas in the Midwest are performing. So, as a general metro market, Chicago, not as much. But if you're looking up, you know, east of us, like Indianapolis or Columbus, those cities are actually looking quite good. They have more attractive cap rates than you would think for the rent growth that they're getting. So, they're good options if you're trying to get like a cash flow investment. Those are good markets for something like that. Obviously, if you're still trying to go with a crazy rent growth and an appreciation place, you're going to be in places like Phoenix and, and Tampa. but. Those markets do still have a lot of potential and a lot of life if you can get the right deal in them, which is something that, you know, when we were starting, right. it was like, nah, forget the Midwest. We got to find a nice big place. Yeah. It's like, no, no, there's actually yeah, some I've, places in because the Midwest. You hear
1: anecdotes where Columbus, I mean, there's a million plus people there. It's a state mm-hmm. capital. Ohio State's there. Like You, you hear yeah. about this, but again, it's more just like a gut feel. I don't mm-hmm. have the the data or an AI model that say, like, what does it look like? You know, so that's interesting insight because, you know, in mm-hmm. some of these places, especially if you're searching for yield, mm-hmm. you would be better off buying in a place where the cap rate is higher right? because you'll have more cash flow and just take lower rent growth. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a dynamic between the two where you need to factor in everything. You can't mm-hmm. just say, okay, I want the highest cap rate because that might be in a place where the rents aren't going to rent growth. all. That's why the cap rate's high. So that that makes like I bought an industrial deal actually at a, at just under a nine cap, twelve years ago, and mm-hmm. we're making our budget, and I we're almost at a ten cap. So this is a huge cash flow deal, but the rents didn't change much because we one of the tenants had a who has half the building had a fifteen year flat lease. Oh, okay. so we wanted that for cash flow, mm-hmm. and the mar and now at renewal we're gonna get our, get our increase here. But mm-hmm. you know that that has to be part of your strategy, and if it mm-hmm. is, then right columbus indianapolis also have higher right. cap rates in these southern markets and you can go there for cash flow and still get growth mm-hmm. so it makes a lot of sense
0: another thing that we take into account when we look at all these different places like we were also looking at florida and in texas but the taxes weren't as good when you've factored in you property taxes and all that kind of stuff it just made phoenix look even more attractive because your tax growth is capped and it isn't in places like texas where in texas it changes every year it can be completely Right. Crazy. So,
1: and it, yet, it, and that's not, and again, that's not something in our AI model. No. That's where you need to be underwriting deals and have an understanding of how everything works state by state or county by county. Right. Because also for Texas, you get a different answer if you're going to be in, if you're in Austin or if you're in Dallas and, uh, mm-hmm. and so Tarrant County or whatever, Dallas County compared to, mm-hmm. what's the county in Austin? You would know in that. Austin? Travis County. The Travis yeah. County or Hobbie's, Hobbie's from Texas. So yeah. that's <laughs> I, I assumed he would know that. And that, right. And that they did, I talked to a tax attorney there and it was a different answer. It was in some, they're going to assess you over what you paid. Cause mm-hmm. that, and that in Texas, you don't disclose the sale price, but mm-hmm. we'll just pick a insanely large number. And, and then you're when you go to, to court, them. you'll have to tell us what you paid and yeah. say, this is crazy. I paid less than this, you yeah. know? <laughs> and then, so you factor that in and you go And So in Phoenix, they don't change the assessed value mm-hmm. when you purchase a property, which There's is huge, a, a 5% cap on the increase mm-hmm. per year. So now your biggest expense is, is is a known quantity Mm -hmm. because actually the 5%, that would be a big increase every year. But what's the hardest on these deals is when, let's say you buy something in in Texas and your taxes are going to, maybe we assume they're going to triple and another buyer is assuming they're going to double only. Mm -hmm. And then for us, we're like, wow, that's a really high price. And then for them, they got some aggressive assumption and missed their Mm -hmm. numbers. So one thing that's been great about Phoenix is there's a lot of property tax certainty Mm -hmm. and then you have your biggest expense largely fixed. So now you're able to grow the net income of the property much more so because right. your biggest expense isn't jumping up. So that's interesting. I mean, that's not necessarily an AI machine learning thing, but that's a huge takeaway. And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, getting is also my strategy. I w I don't want to necessarily be you'd have to have a huge team to do a ton of markets really well. Right, and yeah. where I've thought I've really made made the most of my money was really understanding the market. And then mm-hmm. when something comes up for sale, the rents are are low or this right. is a good price because you really understand that market block by block and mm-hmm. what's going on and that would be impossible to do if you're just looking at stuff around the country
0: i think especially once we have between all the data that we've got and actually going there and how confident we feel in our going tools to that phoenix. we're using going to phoenix i think i think we have a great feel on the city now especially after especially after the past couple months we've been going a lot and The stuff that we're seeing is matching up to what we forecasted and the historical values and all of our, basically what have all of our predictive models have been saying. So that that makes me feel incredibly confident that we're going to find great success there. Not just in, as a whole in the city, but in the particular pockets that we've picked out. I think that we're doing a great job there.
1: Right. Personally, I feel like I... Nearly live there now where I know yeah. where stuff is it's just as well as here. And I actually I spend more time probably doing stuff there. Yeah, there's
0: times where <laughs> it's like, is Drew here or is yeah. he in Phoenix? You know?
1: Right. And then, but you know, usually if I'm here, I'm like in the office in Phoenix yeah. or, or like exploring or meeting people. So it's a joke. I went to, actually, I went to Lake County here. So one county to the north. And I was joking mm-hmm. where it's the first time in quite a while I've been outside of Cook County or Maricopa County. <laughs> you know, just fly from back. Yeah, and forth you've only been in those to, two. Go up to Lake County to meet somebody. So mm-hmm. you know, that's pretty. Um, but nice. I think great. Let's just leave it there. You know, great job, Javi. Appreciate you being on. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'd love to be on. I know I need, and thanks for all your help on the podcast too.
0: An associate to the podcast.
1: One thing that where a re- big reason why I wanted to do this, like both in general, the podcast, my mm-hmm. parents are teachers. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I'd find myself saying the same lessons to people over and over again, mm-hmm. where people would ask for career advice or how do you become a principal or do what, do what you do. And I'm yeah. saying a lot of the same things over and over again. And I'm thinking, I'm seeing other people with podcasts and stuff and I'm thinking just, just start one. And then this stuff will be out there for people to learn from and it'll be kind of like my parents. And and anyways, and so what, where I'm getting at is, so Javi was new and I thought you Mm. could, you could stand to gain a lot by watching these as well. So he's been, you know, AI and also. I've
0: seen every episode. (laughs)
1: Also podcast screener. So we got a YouTube credential coming or something. Yeah, to put that on my resume. (laughs) Great. Thanks Javi. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the rise and invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our hundred plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily invest- investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brineman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.